Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. Today, we're going to be talking about something very interesting, something potentially quite new to some people in the form of the anatomy of a high-profile incident. Now, if you've been in InfoSec for any length of time, you will have experienced some form of incident. Sometimes it's a piece of malware that's come in and uh, uh, maybe a phishing email or problem that occurs that you will need to go in and resolve. Um, this happens Time and time again, plenty of times in your average day-to-day working environment for any InfoSec professional. But what we're going to talk about today is a high-profile incident. We are talking the serious ones, the ones that come once in a blue moon. When they hit you, they hit you like a freight train. They cause massive problems. There's people in your own company who potentially are, are panicking, frightened, worried about whether or not the business is going to survive it. Uh, you're obviously worrying because you've got to try to at least try to resolve the situation or put a Band-Aid over it, and you're probably getting fired at from all different angles all around the business, asking for updates, what's going on, how do you fix it, have you fixed it yet, and so on and so forth. It can get extremely stressful. Now, today, I am really lucky to have two fantastic gentlemen from Mishcon, Paul Hemmings and Joe Hancock. Guys, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Fantastic. Do you kind of want to just introduce yourselves one at a time uh, and a little bit about yourselves, a little bit about about, about your background, what you do, um, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, Sorry to say I'm Joe Hancock. Um, I'm a partner here at Mishkondorea. I have to say this, I'm not a lawyer. I just work for a law firm. I lead the cybersecurity practice here, uh, where we focus on helping clients who, as we've mentioned already, have some of those high-profile incidents. So I've been in cyber for too long, started when it was information security. No one was interested. No one wanted to talk to me about it. People still don't want to talk to me, but everyone's heard of cybersecurity now. So uh, at least something's changed. But yeah, that, that's what we do on a, on a you know, not a day-to-day basis, a week-by-week basis, helping our clients that they've had those kind of high-profile problems. Fantastic. Paul Hemmings. Uh, I'm the commercial director within our cyber practice here in Mishkondrea. Uh, I work for Joe. Um, similar background to Joe, sort of starting, I guess, back in defence security uh, side of things and, yeah, the last 20, 25 years into what is now called cyber. Um, uh, Securecom's originally now cyber. It's funny how things have changed, isn't it? You know, it, it used to be called IT security. Then it was called information security. Now it's kind of gone back to cyber security, although yes, many yeah. of us say cyber security is just an extension of information security, but sometimes people look a bit cross-eyed when you say information security these days. So it's funny how things turn around. But no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. So high-profile, big incidents, the ones that you you really fear hitting you, um, this is the type of kind of situation where normally you guys are brought in. I, t- I take it the average client, uh, assuming they haven't got some kind of retainer with you, will give you a 
very panicked phone call. They're in the middle of something smelly hitting the fan. There's things going off all over the place. You know, what do you find yourselves in quite commonly when when this happens, when you have that panicked infosec person, business owner, uh, IT lead, whoever it may well be? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause, I mean, the first thing is kind of when these things happen, you know, there's, you know, you always have this idea that, you know, you're going to get the call at two o'clock in the morning and it's going to drag you out of bed and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, bitter experiences told me that the two times these things happen are you know, four, 4 30 on a Friday or whenever I put my out of office on, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. And, and, and I think there's that, that's something in that, insofar as that often by the time an incident has become big enough for fires going out of control, you are heading towards the end of the day. People don't see the first whiff of smoke, let's call it that, if we can stretch that analogy, and then call you straight away. Things develop so often we're getting called at the end of the day. But also, like you know, we see, especially holiday periods, that's often when people have got, you know, there's people still around the office, people around the business, they've got a bit less to do, perhaps, or they're in their kind of day job. And so, you know, they start looking, uh, oh, hang on, that, that light has been blinking on that thing for quite a while now. Maybe I should go and look at it. We've had incidents that have been notified to us, you know. 23rd of December, I have ruined several Christmases. My wife won't let me forget it. But because that's just when stuff kind of occurs. And you're right, you know, those calls are sometimes panicked. They're sometimes emotional. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes people, you know, are quite calm about these things. You know, maybe they're like the the duck frantically paddling and serene on top and not so much under the water. But the, the thing that's common to all of them is you're always dealing with a level of ambiguity. It's never entirely clear what necessarily has happened and also what is going to happen. You know, uh, our, our responders always have to be very comfortable effectively dealing with the unknown. You know, you, you can't come up with a, uh, a solid plan that you're going to be able to follow step by step by step through things. They are ultimately, it's always an investigation. You're always working through things, unpicking things, trying to get to the best idea you can of what's occurred and also frankly getting together as much of a plan as you can to put things right again for whatever definition of right is though i think to a certain degree those calls probably don't don't get any easier i bet they don't i mean and this is the thing isn't it i mean on the lower end incidents you can create things like playbooks and what have you they tend to happen in a very similar fashion the response tends to be very similar as well i mean whenever i create playbooks and we do do that quite a bit for our customers you know, I try to get, leave them as adaptable as possible, but more often than not, you could you can kind of roughly predict what you'll need to do and when you need to do it. But that's really not true when it comes to the really nasty events, one of those kind of company-shattering events like full-blown ransomware, possible massive fraud or IP theft, which could feasibly completely destroy an organization or its reputation or anything. I mean, this is where... It's not enough just to have an infosec person there to tr- to try to fix it. I'm guessing a lot of the time you've you've had a situation where the the information security professional or team, maybe some other members have said they've tried to fix something, but they've reached a point where they've realised that it's actually getting way too critical for them to be able to deal with. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, I think. I- Absolutely. And, you know, I always look at the, look at what we do as effectively crisis management for cyber incidents, because by the time it gets to, to you know, this level, it's, it's no longer uh, it's no longer an event anymore. It's a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if, if, you're, if this is going to you know, exact those size impacts, 
And sometimes that, that is potential impact. The impact hasn't happened yet, but you can see it. I think you can see that there's going to be regulatory action. You're potentially going to get fined. You can see you're going to get sued. You can see that your users and other customers' data subjects aren't going to be very happy. Or frankly, you can just see the size of the problem getting your business back up and running again. But to me, you know, you're, you're facing a crisis at that point. And again, most instant response plans greater the incident bit. And again, most crisis plans for organizations tend to be business continuity plans. And so often we tend to find we're in this bit of a gap where, you know, our more mature clients who've got good crisis management capability, I'd say, yeah. are not the ones then having major incidents. The, the Venn diagram of people who have incidents and level of maturity, big incident level of maturity is, um, is quite far apart. But yeah, we, we treat these things as a crisis and therefore, you know, you're looking at a broader set of skills. There's always been, I think, within the kind of the cybersecurity domain, let's call it that for today, you know, a real focus on the response to an incident is to do lots of forensics, to do lots of investigation, to find out what happened. Let's work out how the attacker, and there's always an attacker, in, in the kind of traditional sense of work, got in and did this thing. Whereas actually a lot of the time what we're dealing with is a situation where the business response is different. The business is worried about PR and comms. It's worried about legal liability. It's worried about its regulatory obligations. It needs to know what happened, but to a certain degree, it's not really worried about whether or not you've gone and got a forensic image of every machine that's involved. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and these kind of things. And so often, I find that you know, when we're dealing with incidents, when we're dealing with your classic kind of information security orthodoxy, it doesn't actually help with a business response to a to a, a business incident, which is what a crisis like this is. Yeah, I think I, just to add to that, I mean, one of the things we've learned uh, as a team is uh, the skill set is very broad that's needed. And as Joe said, coming into an incident, it could be anything, quite honestly, you know, and it develops and morphs at quite a rate. The clever thing is having that skill set together so that, again, that speed of response is fast. And that pool of knowledge is essential to be able to establish a strategy and a plan very early on to be able to then give the clients options. And that just comes from experience and knowledge. Um, but we probably have 11, 12 different individual functions, for want of a better word. Being able to reach and pull those together very quickly, as Joe says, within that crisis, being able to bring them in, play to their strengths, and indeed to be able to not handhold, but, but calm the client and explain the next 72 hours, most likely, from our experience, are going to look like this. And these are the options. And this is why. You've got some wonderful war stories about uh, those environments. Yeah, the emotional side of things <laughs> is always, I mean, you are in a bit of a pressure cooker, right? It's the, you know, I've, yeah, I mean, we've had incidents where senior members of the team have just disappeared for three days because they, you know, they've been, they've already been living and breathing this for two weeks before and they just, they get kind of over the edge completely rightly. You know, there's, there's a human cost to incidents, you know, which, which people often forget about proper. But by this, I mean, I mean, the crisis, not just an incident. You know, one of the thing, things I always kind of ask when we first get involved is like, when was the last time that anyone ate or slept? Because, you know, you were in both of those things start feeling like a luxury when you're, you know, you're really firefighting, they want to pitch in something. But after about kind of 72 hours, they become really important. I always kind of joke with the team when we're dealing with a real crisis, you know, if, if if somebody hasn't shouted at me within the first 72 hours, are we really dealing with a crisis? 
because that and I used to say to my clients, look, emotions are running high. You know, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. You know, we're not going to always be able to tell you everything is all right and going to be fine. We're going to say we don't know. You know what I mean? And that, you know, all the emotions going on. People are always, always coming from a good place with it. No one's doing this, this maliciously, right? People have the emotion because they care or, and they're worried and those kind of things. But, um, yeah, you, you, I'd say sometimes crisis management then is kind of 50% incident response and 50% being a kind of a therapist and putting your arm around someone saying, this is going to be all right, here's what we're going to do and helping guide them through it so they can go back to the day job that they want to be doing. Absolutely. I mean, one. I mean, being in information security anyway, you know, you, quite often you're having to deliver news that people don't necessarily always want to hear. And you kind of get used to that. But when you're kind of dealing with a situation where you're communicating to a business owner or the stakeholders or the C-suite that potentially the incident there they're experiencing is going to have some very large detrimental effects on their their business. It's a bitter, bitter pill to swallow, and it's it's very different. When it's a smaller-end event, they'll potentially throw some money at it. They'll deal with having to fix it over a period of time and you know, or maybe buying in a product or whatever it may well be to, to kind of resolve that situation and then take steps to hope that it never happens again. But on these higher-end incidents, you don't have that luxury. And it was really interesting what you said, Paul, when you said about the different sort of like people that you need to bring in. When I teach incident response, I, I teach that about high-level incidents. And a lot of people kind of look at me and kind of go, why do we need a PR person? Why do we need the, the a legal person or a financial person? Why do we need to bother the CEO? And I've said, look, in, in high-level incidents, comms is going to be one of the main things, not only to internally, but also ex- potentially externally as well. And you better get ready for that. And the InfoSec person or the team or the IT team sh- shouldn't and can't do that. That's down to somebody who knows how to deliver that kind of information. And, of course, you know, you're involving the C-suite on these high-end profile issues because, A, they need to know about really what has happened. But, B, they need to prepare themselves and potentially put their weight behind the resolution and getting things back to potentially a working state. And I think uh, a lot of organizations just think InfoSec will deal with it. Oh, if we have an incident, you know, like ransomware, InfoSec and IT will deal with it. No, that's not the case. It actually goes well beyond that. It's good to know that I'm teaching people the right way to do incidents. Oh, yeah, I very do. much so. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very glad to hand all the high-end incidents over to you guys, and, and that is, for all of you out there, what we do when it comes to high-end incidents. You know, Mishcon have got, they've got the lawyers, they've got the people who do that kind of thing. You know, we'll help out, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you just need to bring in the big boys, and, and this is where these guys come in. So let's say an incident has kicked off. You know, you've had the call, you've had the initial thing. It looks like, say, let's just say some IP has been stolen. Maybe it's a car manufacturing firm. Oh, actually, no. Let's say it's a military contractor, and they believe that the the latest plan for, say, a new type of radar or a new type of airplane has potentially been stolen. Be it, it could be state, it could be actual hackers, it could just be whatever. Is there kind of like a defined process you follow once you've kind of gotten through the door and obviously picked up your first coffee and asked whether or not people have eaten and slept? What, what's, what's your kind of standard process? What would you recommend people obviously do other than obviously calling you guys? 
Yeah, I mean, we have kind of standard playbooks and approaches for, for different incident types. I mean, so we, while we do differentiate per sector in normally in terms of people's notification obligations, effectively, in defence, we know that if you are, you know, you're going to have to tell certain organisations, certain agencies, you're going to be able to lean on a certain amount of support, and your supply chain contracts are also going to have certain requirements in them, which you wouldn't find if you were in the, you know, be different in the healthcare sector. You know, again, where you know, different obligations, totally different again, if you're in regulated financial services, you know, or if you're just running a retail store, you know, the, 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 there's different obligations, but ultimately, often from a technical side of things, the attacks are pretty similar. So we have a, you know, for example, if we're looking at a single host compromise or a network compromise, have a specific playbook for those things. Uh, and we follow the standard NIST model to analyze, contain, eradicate, and cover effectively. And we, we stage all of our playbooks uh, around that. It's very, what's very interesting in these kind of different scenarios is often one of the things we want to understand is, right, actually, what is the impact we're worried about? What are we actually trying to, trying to, to get back to because that will steer to a certain degree what options we have and, and don't have. I mean, the the defence example is an interesting one because there is probably going to be more intelligence value and more questions from your potential clients around what happened and who did it. A lot of big people in suits are going to come down and, and knock on your door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and to a certain degree, that might be to your favour, right? Because it might actually be that the incident gets taken over and handled, and it's you know that's, that's no bad thing, right? From a from a cost perspective, uh, and the, the reason for that is though that you know from a, you know if you're a publicly listed company, obviously comms and PR very important because it's going direct to share price. But if you're if you're not there, the thing you really need to worry about is again is those customers because you know the defence sector is always an interesting one where. It's not like somebody will go and buy a competitor's product, and it's not like someone's going to go and take that IP and build their own. The person who would do it is someone who who wasn't going to buy from you in the first place, right? It's, it's an adversary rather than the, the friend, so to speak. You know, and you you've only got to look at the comparisons of some countries' aircraft, for example, to see that some of those probably came from espionage of a cyber variety. But in those kind of spaces, again, to me, you know, it's always about following as defined a process to deal with the type of incident that you're kind of facing. And the reason for that is not because the process is perfect, but it's there as an aid memoir. It's there to make sure that in the heat of the moment, everyone remembers the things they're supposed to be doing and you, you can learn the lessons from, from, from each kind of incident. So to a certain degree, our process is sector agnostic, the bit which is, is specific is often around kind of how the business model works and who you have to talk to and, uh, and those kind of things. Uh, and ultimately, some of the actions that we might then take in mitigation of those things. So, you know, if someone is it's a PII breach and you're FCA regulated, you know, you, if it's big enough, you're going to have to tell the regulator. And you, you have a positive obligation to do that. And you need to do it in the right way. And you need to work with them. And there are steps that you can take then for to, to, you know, to make sure that consumers are protected and there's no impact on operational systems. And you know that regulator will care about those things and ask you those questions. So in that sector, that's what you need to be focused on, because that is ultimately one of your biggest kind of risks. Again, just wouldn't apply in retail, if you see what I mean, if you were in a non-regulated industry. There's a lot can, that can come out from threat intelligence as well, isn't there? Again, we've got a, a threat intelligence team, which figure quite prominently in many of those playbooks very early on in the incident. There's a lot of information that can help inform those next steps, which can be 
Yeah, incredibly useful, incredibly helpful with, with looking at options. We always believe that you want to be intelligence-led because, again, it's that, you know, to a certain degree, if you're looking for the needle in a haystack, it's good to have a really good idea of what needles look like. If you see, I mean, it's a kind of really stretch the analogy. We always use that team. I mean, a classic example is you get an extortion demand. Is it real or not? That is, to me, that's a threat intelligence problem. It's, you know, do I, you know, do I recognize any, any of the kind of information that's in there? Do I recognize a group name? Is that, you know, a group that is affiliate-based or kind of one solid group? Is it, have we seen other notes that look like this? Are the cryptocurrency addresses in there real? You know, have they ever been seen before? You know, and, and you, you, you do an intelligence assessment and that then drives your kind of response. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of extortion notes that have been so amateur, they've demanded um, cryptocurrency payment and not included an ability to pay them. And an address, I've, you know, I have seen it where they have DDoSed a client and then sent them an email to systems that are now unresponsive to try and pay a ransom. And only three days later, once we dealt with the denial of service, did we find the ransom demand. So you, know, you look at those things and you see there's a certain MO to it and you kind of know what you're dealing with. But the flip side of it is you also see... Busy or unorganised criminals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you see the other end of it. Paul's talking to you there. I always, you know, in, in my brain, I always you know, put things into organised and disorganised criminals. And I always prefer to deal with the organised ones because they're organised. And frankly, it's just easier. There's rules and they're not very emotional about it. And you can actually have a conversation with them. The disorganised ones, it's all emotion. They've seen too many movies, crazy demands. When you say no to them, they take it really personally. They do silly it doesn't help anybody on the organized so this is to defend neither camp but on the organized side at least you you can get to a resolution but again that's an intelligence assessment what kind of crook am i dealing with when we're when we're dealing with cyber criminals we've had results where you know we, we've done negotiation we've helped get to the right place the group said thank you for making this such a smooth process we'll give you two weeks of tech support on this email address you, you, you know it, 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 it's a, a weird weird world out there dealing with with cyber crime including, you know, when you're then, you know, depending on whether you're dealing with organised or disorganised criminals, whether you will see fiat payments or cryptocurrency payments, how you trace those, how do you work through any potential money laundering issues? And again, that intelligence assessment right at the start is what then sets and defines the kind of playbook and tactics we'll use to to go after the, the bad guys. I did have a good laugh, actually. I chucked it up on LinkedIn about one group who actually say, just quietly tell us what your policy is for cyber insurance and we'll we'll charge it to that you know so we just want the money taken from the insurance people you know we, we're not interested in you but it's 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 quite frightening how they become more and more organized and they become less fragmented and now there's a lot of interconnects there's access brokers who are well known and vetted by teams who then sell that to the relevant team and sometimes that team will put it off to an affiliate if they think it's better better being run by an affiliate they also tend to get really annoyed when a, a, an affiliate if their policy is not to attack children's hospitals good example i saw um recently yeah. mm-hmm. and they get really annoyed if their affiliate attacks a, a, a children's hospital and they'll actually kind of get on the on the yeah. comms and say uh, protecting their brand well this is it i mean ultimately as i say to a lot of people who question me because you do get it a lot from people who aren't in cybersecurity. why do they do it why are they doing this and it's like well they're doing it for the money that's all they care about there are fundamentalists out there there are people who go and do stuff to to just cause you pain 
But the the really organised ones, the ones where you see the really big incidents, they're they're in it for the money. That they're all in it for gain, and that is literally it. <sighs> However, there is another type of high end incident which is quite interesting. What happens if it's an a malicious insider, and they're still there? Have you come across that? And how how does that work? Because because I'm guessing they're trying to prevent you in many ways. Kind of obviously, they don't want you finding out what's what what they've gone and done. Um, so they're trying to cover their tracks, uh, but they're still there, and potentially they could be on that C-suite watching what you're doing. Run me through sort of like what you do then. I mean, are you? Is it a case of you you try to figure out very early on whether or not it was an insider, and if it is, whether or not it's one of the people you're communicating with, just to be wary or? Do you wait till the end and do a big reveal like in, you know, Colombo, for instance? You know, how, how does that work? I, I, I only wish it was so um, televisual. Um, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> in 80% of the cases, you know straight away based on what's happened. You know, whatever's brought the incident to light tends to point you one way or another. So, you know, if there has been an internal fraud and the accounts don't line up anymore and some money's missing... You, you tend to know who 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 it is in inverted commas. At least you've got a suspect pool. You, you know you've got an insider problem because you know it's the more likely explanation. But there are some cases where you come into something and you know it's what I, I would now call a gut feel. But you know you you can you can just you can just feel that this might have the hallmarks of uh, of an insider. And sometimes we deal with people with administrative and privileged access in the IT team who are the ones who are um, on the wrong side of this. I, I was speaking to some uh, intelligence companies on a podcast a little, little while back, not not that long ago, and they were talking about how the, the malicious side, the malicious actors were, were cha- some of them were changing their tactics, and they were giving a percentage of whatever they got out of, ultimately out of, of breach, to the individual who gave them access, and they're actively you know, trying to find people inside an organization, maybe somebody disgruntled, they didn't get their bonus, they didn't get a pay rise, they didn't, you know, maybe they're just desperate. You know, there's a lot of desperate people out there. And it is getting to the point where I think one of the guys was saying that they're finding occasionally when somebody has compromised someone's home network as part of that, obviously, to try to get in, they found that the partner is playing away from home where they shouldn't be playing away and then feasibly use them to introduce malicious stuff into the, the work environment of the person working from home. And a, there's a lot of, of very insidious kind of methods now that these groups are starting to look at using. Is that correct? I mean, is that what you're seeing as well? I mean, we see a lot of intelligence reporting around it, and, and, and some of that comes from you know groups advertising for people who've got access whether it's real, whether those people actually ever get paid, we haven't seen an incident yet where someone has been paid by an external actor to carry out a cyber attack. We've seen plenty of incidents where there are insiders and outsiders involved. And, you know, and they, sometimes you get coercion, sometimes you get just kind of, you know, family relationships, people are associates, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to commit this fraud and rip the, my employer off for this amount, and I need a bank account for it to go into. And you're my family member, so I use yours, you know. And you you, you get that kind of stuff. I mean, business, we, business partners that fall out, business partners that fall out. Yeah, you get you know, there's 
there's a whole range. I mean, we I said disgruntled IT administrators dealt with a few times now. Uh, again, tends to be in in smaller businesses where where they are the only person with 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 the access. You know, you don't tend to see it in in large organisations, and also you you do just get you know you get the full spectrum kind of human behaviour in in this stuff. But you know, in in tougher economic times, you know, economic crime does go up. There's the, the there's no doubt that there are opportunities presented to people that they wouldn't take if they were in slightly different circumstances, and sometimes they do. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as an industry. I think we're now becoming more accepting around that insider risk exists, and we should do something about it. I think kind of even ten years ago, it was kind of frowned upon to you know to to, to talk about that because it might indicate you didn't trust everybody in your organisation all of the time, and that that really we don't want to do. Whereas now, kind of managed distrust, I, I see as kind of you know appearing more and more, and that's. I'm confident that everyone who works for our organisation is a good person and I can trust them. But I also want to make sure we have financial controls in place, data control, so I can prove that to somebody. And, you know, and so we, I think it's becoming much more accepted to deal with that in that way. But, yeah, we, we do deal with those kind of sometimes malicious, sometimes accidental insider-type problems. I mean, one example I always come back to is what do you do with the – the person who works for the organisation, if they generate constant security issues. So, you know, I mean, this is the fourth time you've been fished this year and this has cost us X amount and we've had to report to the regulator twice. What do you do about that? You know, the, the, the classic cyber answer has been awareness training, which I'm pretty sure they had. And they clicked next 150 times and now they're aware. And kind of, you know, but they've still got a problem. And often, is that, a, is that a systems issue? Are we asking someone to do something and putting them in a situation where... You know, if their job is to click on links and they get 1,500 emails a day, well, it's not their fault. Is it something we need to deal with as a performance issue? You know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of kind of more organisational type issues I see around this kind of insider problem we're just starting to, to deal with now as well. So slight aside to your question. And, and the social engineering side, again, is becoming ever more sophisticated. To, to deal with what Joe's described, again, um, it's fair to say the attackers are increasingly upping their game yeah. in that space. All, they're all using Grammarly and ChatGPT to write better phishing emails. Yeah, targeting individuals, using social media, really getting to understand the victim, you know, who they're going to approach. And to your point, James, bribery, coercion, again, that's typically one of the, one of the tools they use uh, in, in, in getting to understand what will make that individual undertake something. Perhaps typically they wouldn't, you know, it's... Mm. Uh, it's a complex space, certainly. It's interesting. Are you seeing more and more attacks? I mean, you read the media at the moment and everything, you know, there's something new. There's actually two or three things that are new pretty much every other day or every day. We've had a, a whole raft of very, very high-profile breaches that have caused some, some massive economic problems. And obviously, with, with it was Merck, wasn't it, that, um, that won the £1.4 billion payout uh, which has now meant that insurance companies uh, can't feasibly use the whole. It was an act of war because we could uh, associate the malicious actors with a, a, a nation state, or we suspect they're a nation state. So it's an act of war. 
are you starting to see kind of attacks speed up and the, the incidents occurring on a much more regular basis on bigger and bigger clients? Or is it still pretty standard as you've always experienced? I think it, it doesn't make good headlines, but it's it's always been the same. There's always been a background level of of, of incident, if you see what I mean. I mean, you know, and sometimes, again, as a sector, we get very distracted by, you know, it's an advanced this and it's a nation state that, and it's all very, you know, Statistically, in my view, you know, you're likely to be a victim of cybercrime. And frankly, I'd be a victim of not very good cybercrime. You know, invoice redirection fraud from account takeover or business email compromise works. It's why the crooks do it. They make good money out of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and there's plenty of, of victims, especially in the SME space, that they, they can keep kind of churning through. And we, we see the background level of those attacks, I'd say, is pretty much the same as it was even a couple of years ago. During COVID, we saw some changes. I mean, we saw changing kind of TTPs, but more around when parts of the world had lockdowns, you'd see less attacks from those parts of the world. And then also because the attackers, basically every, every phishing lure became about COVID, you know, but because no one's reading emails about anything else, right? You know, and, you know, so that changed, but the, the world's kind of gone, gone back to normal again. I mean, we, we do see, I, I kind of call it like tinkering around the edges, if you see what I mean. The MFA stopped a bunch of account takeovers. It's now becoming pretty easy to fish your way around MFA. And so, you know, that, that and the, but, but the, the kind of the instant, the background still happens. It's just that the, the sort of stuff in front of it changes. I think the kind of the, the high profile incidents, the thing that has changed is people are now more accepting that this stuff happens. I think we've got a bit of breach fatigue, even if you think about kind of like, you know, the, the travel ransomware, for example, yeah. which was, was headline news, I think because of when it happened, not to say where it happened, who it was. But there wasn't that kind of like, you know, you don't get the victim blaming you used to get where before, where it was seen as people's fault, so they should have been doing something differently. And also people, I think, worry about it a bit less. I mean, I suspect all three of us have had multiple emails saying that our data has been lost somewhere, potentially. You know, I mean, I, you know, and, and to a certain degree, you just kind of like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It doesn't, it doesn't change anything. I think the drumbeat is still the same. Don't know, it, it will change. I mean, we did some research a couple of years ago where we, we looked at kind of, you know, from uh, different scenarios, the future of cybercrime and what would actually make cybercrime stop. And while you have... Oh, you're never going to stop it. Well, yeah, but, but when, when you've got parts of the world, I, t- I totally agree with that, though. When, when you've got parts of the world that have got less economic opportunities, populations with a high level of technical skill and education, and there's poor security practices more broadly that represent an opportunity to make money, people are going to commit sorry, people commit crime in general, right? It becomes down to, to an opportunity piece. If, you, if it is a way for you to make more money using your skill set than doing something else in a legitimate way, from one perspective, you can see perhaps how people end up where they do. Yeah. And, you know, exactly. and again, when we have lax enforcement, I mean, you look at you know, law enforcement is just not capable of dealing with cybercrime in, in volume because all, all the reasons with the smaller law enforcement agencies, these kind of things, you're right. That's why I think we will never stop it. But yeah, all of that means that there's this constant drumbeat of these yeah. kind of issues. I mean, do you think it's becoming a lot more organised, though? If the rate of of incidents and and issues is the same, do you? I mean, do you have any concerns about seemingly how 
it used to be a bit of a wild west. It would be groups of individuals going out, trying the hand and all the rest of it. But now it seems to be a little bit more like how the Yakuza was was run. You know, it's run as a company. It's run with with a person in charge and, you know, almost like cells of individuals underneath. I mean, does that give you pause? Because I must admit, I mean, the amounts of money that you're seeing them being paid out, and they are being paid out quite often, it's just going to attract more and more individuals into that space. As you say, especially especially from countries with a, a, an issue with economics and all the rest of it, or even people who are desperate, you know, people who've lost their jobs, who've got skills in this space, and, and they've got to feed the kids. I mean, who wouldn't? Let's be honest. If, if you got desperate, you turn to the dark side. You've got to put, you, if, you've got, if you've got to feed your kids, you've got to feed your kids. But it, it does seem to be getting so much more organised. Gone are the days where people go into a bank, bust in, do the vault, grab the stuff, get out, you know, and, and go. It's far easier to do cyber-based attack, compromise, and you can even buy in as a service functions now, which is even even more hilarious. You know, and they're so well-funded as well. <laughs> I think it's worth remembering criminals are lazy. Yeah. And, you know, that path of least resistance, if there's an easy way of doing it, they'll do it. You don't have to be sophisticated yeah, stuff to work. You really don't, right? I mean, you really... And it's interesting to use the analogy of the bank robbery, okay? You know, you, you don't see banks getting turned over. You know, that there is a you know, whole bunch of security process in place. And also, we've, you know, frankly, digitised and removed the big bank vault, right? Yeah. Which is actually the... Plus, I don't have any money, if you, especially if you're with SVP. <laughs> True, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument the banks have become the bank robbers, right? But that's kind of... Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we're getting controversial. No, I, to I, I'm to your joking, point, James, yeah. the, the fact that a lot of that malicious code, you know, is very easily accessible. You know, it's cheap as well. Literally for a few hundred pounds, there's things that can be bought very readily. So disgruntled employees and indeed people that are just out to make a fast buck, that is too easy to do these days. And it, the easier it gets, the, the more it becomes a temptation, you know, as you, as you described. I think uh, that is a problem. That is a problem. And I think what's even more hilarious is they've they've got really really good tech support as well. And whether you're whether you're the poor poor sod that's been breached, or whether you're the person who's engaging their service to do the breach, you know I've I've heard their tech support is better than most you know most <laughs> most organisations who you utilise for IT support these days who yeah, are legitimate. You know, probably fair, but you've got to remember the, the you know. They haven't got change control to go through. They've got no shareholders. And, and, and they probably don't have to put a business case together for investment. Maybe they do. But um, I, I suspect that, you know, there's a, a flatter organization, shall we say. Just out of interest for though, you know, I hear a lot from people, what are these people like to talk to? And when you are in a situation where you're in comms with one of the malicious actors who's, that they want their money, maybe they want their ransom, maybe they want, you know, money for the decryptor or whatever it may well be, you know, we don't care really what the incident is. What do they like to deal with? I mean, obviously, as you've mentioned before, you've got the ones who are really kind of, you know, the ones who are less experienced. But what are the really experienced, the ones that really give you pause, what do they like to deal with? In, in my experience, you know, they've always been, I mean, like, I, you know, build a relationship. You know, it, it's not a one, you know, so where it starts and where it ends is sometimes two different places. And also, you know, as you go along the process, you want to build commitment on both sides and you want to, depends why, why, why you're communicating, right? So, you know, for example, we have negotiated to 
help gain information. We want to know how something happens. We want to know what someone's intentions are. Maybe someone, you know, we've had contacts where someone said, I'm a security researcher and I would like you to pay me a book bounty for this thing that I've found. You know, and then you're trying to work out, well, is this somebody who is, you know, maybe just trying their luck or is this actually a blackmail attempt or it is? And you, depending who they are, what the motives are, you then have to have that conversation. And, you know, you, sometimes those conversations are robust. Sometimes those conversations are a bit more easy, a bit more free-flowing. But the, the thing I'd say overall is that, that the more organised the people you're dealing with and the more professional, the easier this stuff is because you quite quickly get into a, into an interaction that uh, that is, you you know if they say, and we will message you back in 48 hours, they will probably do it. And if they say they're going to do something, then they'll do it. Because there's no, because you know, it gets to Paul's point, it goes to their brand, right? If they say they'll do something you, and they follow through on their commitments, they, they, they want to market to people like us, right? Whereas they want to get to an end goal, but you know that they've probably got four or five other opportunities on the go at the same time. Whereas again, when you're dealing with the slightly more, you know, let's call them amateur, disorganized, single person who's going to, you know, just maybe doing the security researcher type thing. You know, again, it's a bit more emotional for them. The, the amounts might be small they're asking for, but actually that matters more to them. And those conversations, again, I must admit, everyone has tended to be pretty pleasant. Sometimes, you know, people get a bit emotional, especially when they often to the point where, say you've been extorted for ransom, there is a point the person on the other end of the phone will work out they're not going to get paid. And, that is, and, and, and if that's what's not going to happen, then that's the point where there's going to be a reaction and they'll either just... You know, they're either going to, nothing's going to happen, they're going to do what they said they do, or there's going to be a bit of kind of... Well, ultimately, they just want to get paid, don't they? So, I mean, on their side of the fence, they're sitting there thinking, actually, if I don't take this, I'm not going to get paid. So why don't I just take this? I'll just take what, you know... Or, or, or sometimes, you know, they, get, they, they, they think they're going to get paid, they get emotionally invested in it, and then you have to let them down, you know, as gently as you can so they don't do anything silly. You don't want to create a slightly more adverse risk, but at the same time, you know, I kind of come back to this point of most of my interactions with the, with with trucks in that regard have been relatively pleasant, and it, that's been no different actually in the kind of in the physical world than it has been in kind of cyber. When you deal with more, I can't believe what I said, high end criminals, you know, you tend to find everyone's actually we're not the target. There's no benefit to them in kind of in in, in not being at least polite and pleasant with you. But at the same time, you know, there are kind of not rules to it, but you know, everyone kind of knows that we're here doing this, we're going to say that, I don't really believe what you're telling me, and vice versa. How can we build a trust in an untrusting environment in the middle of it? Yeah, but it's, it always, they're always interesting. Just very quickly, do they ever recognise you? Do you ever come across the same guy again and go, all right, how's it going? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is one UK-based organised crime group that we have dealt with I would say three times. And the reason I know it's the same people because I recognise the voice on the phone. And that is where they were carrying out an investment type fraud aimed at members of the public. And we um, provided some mobile phone numbers they could call because we wanted to try and work out what was going on. And over a period of time, we recognised the same person. And that is because they have got a system, a scam of a thing that works. And that's what they do. Yeah, you, you, you sometimes do find that. Other times you've got no no idea, right? You're, do they ever recognise you, though? I, I hope that somewhere someone <laughs> isn't sat there being like, 
every time I ring that number, I get him. It's him again. It's yeah. him. Yeah. He's awful. He's so rude. <laughs> Do you ever fear that, you know, because of what you do, you could end up being the target from some of these groups yourself because they just get a bit annoyed or, you know, they've had a bad interaction or they've not got what they want and gone, right, that's it, I'm going for this? No, not not really. We do sometimes see angst against kind of like, the you know, anti-malware companies and researchers who have caused them pain. We're there to try and help manage the incident ultimately we're, we're, we're there to kind of you know look right we want to bring these people to justice we absolutely do but at the same time you know they're going to be more angry probably at law enforcement than, than us we we are a you know one in a thousand people that that, that do this so you know I, I would i worry more about if we were involved in you know uh, this was the Italian mafia, and we were dealing with a negotiation that I'd be more worried about than turning up at home. Whereas, no, I, 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 I don't worry about it from that perspective. Um, frankly, if I did, I wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be worth my, my family's kind of safety. Of course. Not. The uh, we've talked a lot about negotiation, but the incidents that end in negotiation are, are, are rare. You know, it's, it's not every day. Most of the time, you know, when when you're investigating or you're doing incident response, you know, you you don't have an adversary on the other side of it. And also, to a certain degree, what's really in it for them? To put themselves in harm's way by coming to the UK in the first place. Because, you know, again, the, part of the reason that people go into cybercrime is because it is the, the risk of being caught over international borders. Oh, I meant, I meant them attacking you digitally, you know, not coming down your house and... Yeah, no, no, no. no. You, you see, yeah, so, you know, from, from, a, from a digital perspective, I, 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 absolutely, right? And, and to a, but again, to a certain degree... I kind of view the same as the physical What What would they gain by it? They get to see lots of photos of my dog and kids. Mm. But welcome to those. <laughs> and, they're, and they're lovely dogs. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, well, we've reached the top end of the, the hour or so. Final thoughts on this, really. I think one of the things that I train a lot of my, train a lot, you know, we do a lot with our customers is kind of like the high-end, what we call the high-end wargaming where we don't do the malicious attack on just one machine or whatever, but we actually war game through a serious event, you know, like uh, the death of somebody with a, who's a single point of failure or different situations where parts of the company are compromised and stuff. I see a lot of people doing the lower-end stuff where they're reliant on the InfoSec team to provide pretty much all of the guidance. But as you guys said kind of towards the beginning – High-end incidents require so many more people involved or so many different types of, of disciplines involved, be it legal, be it financial, be it the CEO or, you know, head of, head of marketing, head of finance, whatever it may well be. Do you think there's value in doing that high-end wargaming where you, you involve those individuals, you know, and would you recommend that to organizations who genuinely want to be prepared for high-profile incident, other than obviously having you guys on retainer as a quick plug for you guys. No, no thank you, Jen. No, um, uh, absolutely right. I mean, I, I always say that every kind of pound, minute, somewhere, you know, whatever item of value you want to go for, you you kind of spend in advance of an incident, I think, pays off exponentially when you have Absolutely. You know, be that spending, you know, you spend half an hour having a cup of tea in the team, chatting over what would we do if, and it gives you some more questions to go away and think about through to, as you said, doing a much more structured strategic exercise. I think it's really useful for two reasons. One is you get kind of like a bit of organisational muscle memory 
around how this stuff kind of works and how we're going to interact. And you, and then the second bit is you also then flush out all those kind of problems. You know, so again, that's how you know your plan works because you know they all say no plan survives first contact with the enemy. That's you know, let's have that first contact in a managed sensible environment um, and adam in our team who heads up our, uh, our technical incident response function you know always says that you want to make as many decisions as you can when you're not under stress and that is something that always you know i, I think is, is a really really good idea because that safe environment where you can think of these things well would we do x or would we do y what would the implications of that be okay if we were to give our customers that message how would they react would we be comfortable with that message how do we communicate oh well, actually which of our suppliers do we need to notify you want to be working all that stuff out in a nice safe space you don't want to be doing it when it really happens and so yeah no, I, I totally agree uh, exercising tabletops however you want to structure it at whatever level and whatever level of complexity yeah, absolutely recommend it because it is it ultimately it is training. You are training um, hard, so the incident is is easy. Yeah, totally. Do you also think it, in, it engages the C-suite as well, who don't commonly get involved in that kind of thing on a day to day? I mean, they're used to dealing with incidents. Let's face it. You, you know, if you're sitting at that level, you've you've probably dealt with more than a few in your time. But they're different from what we're talking about. We're not talking about sort of like. You haven't paid your tax bill, and you've got to find a, a billion, you know, billion quid. Well, if you need, to, if you owe tax man a billion quid, I think you've got other problems. But you know, uh, do you think you know it opens up the eyes of that C-suite to, and say, look, you know, you've got to be ready for an incident. This is this is stuff you've got to prep for. So you've got to be part of the team. And can we, as infosec people, actually call upon you in the event of a serious incident, whereby you're not going to sort of panic and run around with your waving your arms above your head? you know, screaming, why, why are they doing it? But actually being involved and actually helping us resolve the issue. Is there value in that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there is totally for, for two reasons. One is that it is an excellent place to showcase the value that cybersecurity as a function, discipline or profession adds. So put it this way, you know, if you, you think about kind of like making the business case for security, that is a great way to do it. It brings it to life. It, it helps people visualize and feel something that's ultimately intangible, which I think is is fantastic. So it has, it has that benefit if you look at it from the kind of the CISO's perspective. And if you look at it from the exec perspective, again, I think if anything, well, it gives people assurance. Yeah. It gives people actually assurance that, well, okay, we have thought about this. You have got that. Okay, now I do understand who I can call and why you can. And, it, and I, so I think both sides get something out of it. And, and you're right, you know, as an awareness-raising exercise for senior busy people, if you can do that in a suited, managed way, I think it is much better than sending them on a 15-minute click-next course. Yeah. Those, um, those situations where they are serious and it's business critical, that demands then, as we've said, you know, several functions coming together, mm. being at that C-suite and making big decisions. Now, the implications and the options then that start to come out of those, that's the wargaming that really needs to take place to understand if I go down this route, it's going to open up these options or it's actually going to close down certain other ones. Um, on the notification side, as you were saying earlier, Joe, these are the things that really do need to be played out. We will always advocate around the threat intelligence, you know, again, on the playbook side, if you can put together the most likely scenarios rather than trying to ball the ocean mm. and, again, undertake some of those 
tabletop exercises around perhaps just maybe a few, just one or two or three of those key ones, you're on the front foot straight away. Um, you know, that group are at least familiar with that territory. And indeed, you know, what's, what's likely to happen then? But bringing together HR with finance, with operations, those departments that, again, would absolutely be involved. Again, big incidents, potentially multinational, where it's, again, crossing different jurisdictions. Joe's seen a few of those. It becomes very complicated um, emotionally and, again, with different agendas sometimes. It's, it's bringing that together within that environment. It's a, um, a fast-paced and um, highly charged, I think the word is. It's fine. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I think I think this has been a fantastic podcast and it's valuable to speak to people such as yourselves that deal with this kind of thing on a regular basis because most of us InfoSec people, hopefully, if we're doing things right, you might experience this maybe once or twice in your career. But hearing it from yourselves is, is really valuable because I, th I think what it does is it allows us as InfoSec professionals to think, oh, right, it's not all on my back. There are people I can go and talk to. And I now have a couple of ideas that I can go back to my BCP, DR and start thinking, well, actually, sh shall we start running incidents? Shall we get some awareness? And I love what you said, actually, about it being awareness for the C-suite, that they do have support under them. They've got, they don't have to make, snap decisions because i'm guessing that's part of the problem as well somebody at the top makes a snap decision without talking to anybody below yeah, uh, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or without being any realization that there's anybody below because sometimes you don't you know i mean it's a bit easier now i think i read in a uh, gartner report earlier this morning that 70 percent of large organizations now have a CISO who either advises the board or is part of the board and it's becoming increasingly more important and it's, I mean, I support that for obvious reasons. A, I've been a CISO in my career. And B, how can you, you know, how can you secure an environment when, when you're reporting four levels below? And God forbid if you have an incident, because all of a sudden you've got these gatekeepers who are, you know, I've got to speak to somebody who can make a decision, thanks. Fantastic to speak to you guys. And no doubt we'll probably, re you know, revisit this at various different times. I think this is such a big subject matter. With so many components, I think it would be great to explore a bit more down the line. Thank you, James. Appreciate, appreciate you having us on. Thank you, James. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Fantastic. And thank you, both of you. Have a great day. And if you need any help, you know where to call. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.